Welcome to the Collective Scope Podcast, where we talk to great leaders who are influencing the next generation. Hey guys, welcome back to the Collective Scope Podcast. I'm excited to have Paul Daughtry, the pastor, lead pastor of Victory Christian Church or Victory Christian Center in Tulsa, Oklahoma. He's married to Ashley. They have four kids and Listen, the, the word on the street is Paul is one of the best young communicators on the planet, Rob. The planet. The planet. The planet. That's on, that's on solid footing is who <laughs> I hear that from. So, yeah, Paul, yeah. welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you, guys. Honored to be with y'all. Well, you are you come highly recommended. Um, some of my best friends are on staff there with you. Um, a man who is a spiritual father figure to me uh, is the one who gave you those raving reviews, and I consider him the best peace preacher on the planet. So if he says that, you got to be good. Uh, we, so the Reverend Doctor Mr. Wilson, yeah, Doctor Billy Wilson, yeah. So he, he's legendary here. That's right. Well, he's legendary, he's legendary here too. So at least with some of us. So, uh, <laughs> so how did you get to this role of of lead pastor? Now you're what thirty four? Yes, sir. So how did how did you get to this place? Well. Um, it's interesting growing up in a pastor's home. I didn't ever think I would be a local church pastor. I kind of thought I would be, uh, maybe if any type of pastor role when I was a teenager, I loved my youth pastor was extremely, um, just really impacted by his leadership, by his love, his presence in my life that I thought, okay, if I ever was to do pastoring, I would do youth pastoring, uh, maybe be an intern director in another country. But honestly, I really had to bend towards music, and I uh, played guitar, piano, had a band. I was a songwriter, led a band uh, for about 10 years. We kind of toured around and um, released some albums, and I thought, okay, I'm going to go in the direction of music and songwriting, maybe one day move to Nashville um, or... I think, I think we all had that dream at some point, Paul. Yeah, in the yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Buy a guitar, and, go to Nashville. Yeah, that's it. And so... Um, Honestly, things started shifting my senior year of college. And while I was in college, I kind of volunteered my whole life. When you're a church, you know, when you're a pastor's kid, you're just free labor for your parents, you know? Yeah. And so I just served in kids' church, youth. I was a greeter and usher and served in the worship band. And so um, my senior year of college, I felt to switch my major, which was kind of crazy. I'm like, it's one year. I was majoring. I was double double majoring with music and with um, theology and felt just a shift completely to local church pastor major at Oral Roberts University um, and just really felt to get involved serving as a pastor on our campus, volunteer pastor. And so I just started doing whatever I could to pastor the students and love on them, uh, greet them at the door, pray for them, keep my room open. And people were like, now, who appointed you to do this? I was like, nobody. <laughs> you know, I was like, I'm just, you know, I just feel like I'm supposed to serve. And we didn't really have anyone on our campus who was pastoring the students. We just had um, RAs and we had chaplains and we had, you know, people who served in other capacities. Um, and then right when I graduated, an opportunity opened up for me to be our college pastor at the church. Uh, and my dad didn't want to hire me because he was like, I don't want anyone thinking I'm just hiring you because you're my son. So I'm going to leave it up to other people, whether or not you're the right guy. And I was getting ready to move to Colorado uh, to be a youth pastor because I felt like there was an opportunity there. I was going to take it. Um, but after doing the interviews, 
the guy who was over it said, I think Paul's the right fit for this. So I stayed in Tulsa and little did I know within the next year, my dad would die of cancer. Um, mm -hmm. And the night he passed away, I had been leading our college ministry. God had really blessed um, our leadership, my wife and I, and it grew really fast, really large. Um, and my dad came and preached for me right before he went into the hospital. He preached at our college ministry service. And he came up to me afterwards and he said, Paul, I really feel like God's hand is on you. And I really feel like you're going to help me down the road in a larger way than you even realize. Hmm. And I said, dad, that's a dream. I would love to work with you. I'd love to, you know, maybe plant churches with you in other countries or, you know, pull in more college students to be a part of the church. And then all of a sudden the cancer just like came aggressively on him. And within two months it escalated in the hospital and he passed away. The night he passed away, I felt God speak in my heart, get ready to pastor these people. Well, our church was about, you know, every Sunday about 10 to 11,000 people were coming. Um, and my dad was this visionary leader, uh, wasn't just a pastor. He was, he had started a Christian school, kindergarten through 12th grade. He had started a Bible college, uh, a Tulsa Dream Center based out of um, the Dream Center in Los Angeles from the Barnett family. And then he had started this camp. So there was like five entities and there was, you know, 500 staff members. And when he passed, I was like, God, what are we going to do? You know, I was afraid. I was scared. He was my hero. I was sad. I was depressed. I was discouraged. But I felt this peace in my heart. I felt like God was saying, you know, your dad served his generation. It's time for you to serve yours. Mm -hmm. And I felt like God was saying, serve your mom, serve the church and get ready because you're going to pastor these people. Well, I'm the youngest of four siblings. And so I thought, surely it'll be my older brother, my older sisters, one of their husbands, or maybe it'll be one of my dad's friends, you know, John Bevere, Larry Stockstill. There's all these pastors that came through our church um, that were connected with my father. And I felt like God was saying, no, you're, you're supposed to do this, but you've got to prepare. And within the next five years, um, there was just a whole lot of things that led to the preparation and the board at our church. My mom said, hey, you're the guy. And in 2014, um, at five years after my dad passed is when they came and said, it's time for you to step in as pastor. And I was like, I knew I was supposed to do, I was in tears because I felt like it was a confirmation from God. Um, and I had already been serving our college ministry. Right when my dad passed, I took on roles of assistant pastor. My mom was trying to lead the church. Um, and we had so many people, we had 5,000 people leave our church right when mm. my dad passed over, Man. over a course of four years. So my mom was really, she was leading the church, but she was also really leaning on a team of people. And so I was part of that team preaching, having to sit down with staff members. We had to let go of about a hundred staff members or more. Um, and so that was really tough. You know, at that time I was 24, 25 years old, but it was, it was all part of the preparation to pastor the church um, by that, you know, time that I stepped in. Now, I, I love hearing your story. And I think on that one conversation alone, I could spend probably two hours <laughs> just talking about sort of that whole transition. But um, I think it's really important. I mean, you, you really highlighted some key things there. Number one, you knew that God had put something in your heart to do. You knew that God had put, put that desire, that dream, that calling 
to pastor those people to pastor that church. And when you lose 5,000 people over the course of a year or two years, that's not insignificant. Um, and I think a lot of people could have and probably actually did point the finger, um, label saying you're not a good leader or you're, you're, the team was not a good leader or whatever. I mean, I'm sure you went through all of those conversations. So in the midst of that crisis, I mean, right now, I mean, I think our country today at the moment, even as we're recording this podcast, our country's in a bit of a crisis with this coronavirus stuff. I know right. you're feeling it. We're feeling it personally over here at Lee University with some things that we're having to do and change. Um, in the midst of that crisis, how did you guys stay the course? How did you stay in the process of getting to where you know God was leading you? Yeah. You know, honestly, my mom, she is a hero of perseverance. Like she, when, when my dad passed, she said, okay, I feel like I'm supposed to just step in momentarily whether that's a year, two years, three years, it ended up being almost five years. Um, but she kind of persevered through all of that. I watched her and I helped her. I was like, Hey, let me be, let me be one of your linemen, you know, in football, let mm. me block people for you. Let me block mm. some of the, let me deflect some of the stuff that could be aimed at you. And I felt like God was saying, whatever your mom needs, just serve her. Cause she's a widow and God blesses those who, you know, help widows and help orphans. And so um, that was kind of my calling was like, I'm going to serve her. I'm going to protect her. I'm going to make sure she doesn't have to carry that pain of mm. people leaving and blaming her. And so it was painful because I was a newly married guy trying to help my mom, but also trying to be, you know, leave and cleave and be one with my wife and then watching friends that I had been with all my life, leave our church. And yeah. so there's all this pressure and tension and stress um, but the crazy thing was, and there's so many stories to this, I've preached some on it. It was almost like God was giving me tools for the future during that time of crisis. And I remember this one, um, leader came to our church and he said, in the midst of crisis lies great opportunity, um, for those who are called to lead crisis is an opportunity to emerge as a leader. And, you know, a virus is an opportunity for a cure to emerge, for someone to rise up and, and help lead people through a crisis or a virus. Yeah. And we're seeing that right now in our world, that so many people are in fear, they're in depression, they're in discouragement, they're wanting to give up. So many people are just thinking, you know, we should just cancel everything and stay in our homes and not do anything. And I think the enemy wants to make that a permanent environment to take a momentary wise thing and turn it into a permanent, you know, fear filled thing. Right. Uh, and so I do think, you know, it's kind of like, I was saying this yesterday to a group of people. I said, when world war two was going on and Hitler was just driving fear into the world, that's when Winston Churchill began to shine um, in the British, you know, eyes is yeah. he began to say, we will fight, you know, and we refuse to retreat and we will not quit and we will storm the beaches, you know? And I love, I love that kind of leadership where it's like, no, we are not going to be, we're not going to be defeated. We might go through pain. We might have people leave our church, but we're not waving our white flag. We're not surrendering to the fear and the pandemonium and the depression that's, that's trying to spread. And so that's what God did. God gave us strength, courage. My mom 
recognized that on me. And she said, Paul, I really feel like God's anointed you to lead. You didn't know this, but your dad actually told us, Paul's not ready yet, but he will be ready soon to pastor this church. And that, when I heard that, I was like, dad never told me that. And yeah. she said, yeah, because he knew you weren't ready for it. And cause I was 24 when he passed. So when I stepped in, it was the week I turned 29 years old. Um, and five years later, I still wasn't ready, but I was more ready then than I was, you know, right when he passed. So, yeah. So Paul, uh, talk about that process, that five years in between you, you felt the Lord leading you that direction. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and maybe you weren't certain that you would be the lead pastor, but you, you felt like the Lord God was doing something. How hard was it to stay in process? Because I think that's one of the things that, that we struggle with, especially in, in leading young adults is they, they just don't, it's hard to wait through the process to the promise. Yeah. Like they just want to get to the promise. Like God said it, we're going to go take it. We're going to become influencers. We're going to do whatever's needed. Um, but there seems to be an impatience in the process. So how were you able to just kind of stay and let God keep shaping you in that, in that process? Man, it was hard. And I had, there was people who hated me. I had, um, I mean, even people very, very close to me who said, you're not the right guy. You're too young. It needs to be, it needs to be your older sibling. It needs to be someone else. And so there were many times where I felt frustrated with the process and mm -hmm. I, and I felt afraid. I felt like running. I, there was one guy in particular who tried to like start, stir up kind of like, I, I guess you would call it a, a coup or something. He tried to take over the church. Um, wow. Wow. and he was a very wealthy businessman who had a lot of influence and, uh, wanted to, he said, you need to move to Florida. You need to get out. And honestly, it reminded me of the movie of Lion King when Simba's father died. Oh yeah. Yeah. And Scar was like, leave, you know, and Simba left. And it wasn't until, you know, as he's growing into who he is, he discovers his roar and Nala finds him and she's like, you got to go back, you know? And I felt like when I watched certain movies about people who walk through the pain of losing their father or the pain of just feeling intimidated and they're going through that process, it gave me hope. And I know it's so weird, but Lion King was like, <laughs> food for my soul. I was like, I have a calling and I've got to rise up and I've got to go back and lead, you know, pride rock. I've got to get back there and I got to fight scar, you know? And, um, and so it gave me hope during that time. I would oftentimes go into our church when no one was there. We built a 5,000 seat auditorium the year before my dad passed. And mm -hmm. so I was really upset because I was like, why did we build this massive auditorium? Yeah. And now it's never going to be full. We're going to have curtains up covering the entire auditorium where, and I was so discouraged and I was speaking discouragement and I heard God say, you need to change the narrative and you need to begin speaking faith and you need to start declaring your best days are in front of you. And God's not finished with victory yet. God's not finished with the Doherty family yet. God's not finished with your story yet. And so I started changing my confession. I started going into the church, just praying over all the empty chairs and just getting a vision of hope. I went to several large ministries around the world during that five years to remind myself, I would go there and I wasn't asked to preach there. I would just go there to dream. I would sit in that large auditorium, whether it was in Houston, Texas, whether it was in Dallas, Texas, there's so many big churches in Texas, wherever <laughs> I could go. And I would honestly just go, okay, if it can happen here, God can do it in Tulsa. Um, if it happens there, if it happens in 
you know, Honduras, if it happens in Peru, why not happen in Oklahoma? And I just began dreaming, Lord, you're not done with our church yet. And our best days as a ministry are not when my father was alive, they're going to happen in my lifetime. And it just kind of took hold of that. Well, fast forward today, we're seeing that, that auditorium that I thought would never be full is filling up on Sunday morning at our 11 a.m. service. And we have a Saturday night service and a two other Sunday service. It's like, I was so afraid during the process and wanting to quit, but I think getting a vision, speaking that vision, holding on to that vision, reminding myself there's a purpose for this process. It's going to be worth it. Um, and not running, you know, just continuing to face it head on and, and choosing to fight uh, for, for the dream. So that's awesome. This is actually one of my favorite conversations to have, especially with young leaders, um, because we, we always interpret vision as sort of that creative element of what we think could actually happen, right? There's, and that, that is partly true. Yeah. Um, but I think vision is really born of burden. Yeah. And I think God put that burden on your heart long before he ever actually gave you the vision to actually accomplish the things and do the things that you're doing now and the things that are still yet to come. And so, yeah, uh, that's one of the hard pieces that we have with communicating. It's not hard. It's just, it's just something we have to reinforce constantly is vision is important, but burden is critical, right? Yeah. So how do you, how do you, or how did you, what was that, that, that piece for you, like in sort of allowing God to develop that burden in your heart? Yes. Before you got the vision. Well, the interesting thing is, is, I remember hearing this from another pastor. He said, you have no right to preach to people that you haven't cried about. Mm. Um, if, you, if your heart has not been broken for those people and you have not actually shed tears, not to be on a pulpit preaching a message, but shed tears to see people's hearts and lives healed and saved and renewed and changed, then you shouldn't be preaching to those people. Just because you're gifted doesn't mean you're called. And Amen. Just because, oh, that's good. <laughs> and just because you're called doesn't mean you're gifted. That's good too. You've got to be developed. Um, and so it's developing not just your gifts, it's developing your calling, it's developing your heart for people. That, and so that's what God began to do. I began to say, God, break my heart for what breaks yours. Um, give me a heart, bless me with a burden. I remember watching this movie called Freedom Riders and this teacher you know, she gets a burden for these students. You've seen the movie probably. Yeah. yeah. And Clint Eastwood in the movie, The Father, he says, you've been blessed with a burden. And that just stuck with me. I said, Lord, I want to be blessed with a burden yeah. like Nehemiah was for his people, like Esther was for her people, like Moses was for his people, like Joshua. And God began developing that. And I remember nights just coming into our church, just weeping, not for my dream, but weeping for people in our church. Even today, I met with a group of our teenagers, about 250 teenagers, to let them know we had to cancel, postpone our spring break missions trip. And I could say with sincerity to the teenagers, I said, this was the hardest decision I made because I know you raised money. Mm -hmm. I know you prepared for this missions trip. And I know you're bummed. I stayed up last night praying for you. And I stayed up last night coming up with other ideas for you for spring break, things for you to do. And they even felt it. They said, Paul, I'm so glad that you don't just come in here and make an announcement with this cold face and say the coronavirus has canceled everything. You come in with a sincere heart and you truly carry the weight of people's emotions 
Um, and I think that's the role of a pastor. If we don't care about people, then what the heck are we doing? Like, we, we aren't supposed to just get up and have a great message. We're supposed to have a great heart. For yeah. um, and that has to be developed. That has to be, you got to get that in prayer. You got to get that standing in front of people. My dad used to say, if you want to get compassion, then place yourself in front of hurting people on a daily basis and pray, Lord, help me to feel what they're walking through. Yeah, yeah. Paul, I think you're echoing a lot of what we've heard in this idea of authenticity in leadership. Um, it's, it's one thing to be gifted and you said it great. You can be gifted and still not be called and you can be called and still not be gifted. But the thing that always seems to ring true in any kind of leadership capacity, especially in the church is this level of authenticity. Mm. Um, so how have you, and you said prayer, has that been the key component in staying authentic as a leader, as you've developed and grown into this position as pastor? Yeah, I would say it's prayer. It's, um, just being like, you got to smell like the sheep, you know, mm-hmm. she- good shepherds smell like the sheep. So staying around the people, asking them, way, hey, what are you walking through? How are you doing? Um, and really, I think if you're an introverted person, you have to submit your personality to God and say, mm-hmm. God, I'm not used to getting around people and having conversations, uh, but I need to do that if I'm going to be a good leader. I have to. So I've had to do that because there's times where I would much rather you know, be by myself. <laughs> I, I enjoy me time. I enjoy quiet time. I enjoy not being around large groups of people to talk about everything. Um, but getting around the people, hanging out with them, talking to them, finding out what's going on in their life. Um, and then, yeah, praying, Lord, help me to help me to not just brush aside people's feelings, what they're walking through. Um, and that happens during the week. So even, and, and I'm a movie guy, like that's kind of my one way that I just turn my mind off is mm-hmm. I'll watch a good movie with a friend or with my wife. Um, and usually I feel the movie, like, mm-hmm. I don't know why, but I'll sit in the movie, whether it's Batman or whether it's, you know, um, what did we watch something a couple weeks ago, took our kids to a movie. Oh, you know what? We took our kids to go see that movie, The Good Dinosaur. Oh, I cried in that movie. <laughs> and my kids, it's a cartoon. My kids looked at me and they're like, dad, what's wrong? I was like, oh, the, the little foot, the little dinosaur, he lost his dad, you know, and yeah. he's trying to find his way. And I cried during Finding Nemo. But I think, um, I don't know, there's something about allowing your feelings to get connected to people's situations that I feel like honestly develops an authenticity to go, um, man, I understand. I, I'm seeking to understand mm-hmm. and empathize what people are walking through. So, so it leads me to my follow-up question. One of our favorite conversations is the Enneagram. Do you know your Enneagram type? I'm a seven. A seven. Seven unite, baby. Rob's yes. a seven. See, I'm a, I'm a two. So you talk about the movies and the emotions. That's me. I go to the movie and I like, I feel the emotion of the movie. I feel the emotion of everybody around me. And I'm like, I'm crying because somebody else is crying. Like, it's just like the empathy in me. I'm like, like, oh, I'm so sorry you're crying at the movie. Like, that's a two. But I Rob's like- the adventurer, though. He's like, let's go do it. Like, his Jeep is washed and ready to go to the Koei, I think, here in about 10 minutes oh, yeah. so, or like an hour. So, um, so no, I, we get that. Yeah. So, so in, this, in this process of development, though, you've really become a great communicator. Um, and maybe that was gifted in you, um, but I've, I've listened to several of your messages. Um, I love your, your illustrative methodology, um, your visual, not just with, with props, but in language. 
Um, was that something natural in you or something that, that you had to develop and grow into? Uh, develop. It wasn't natural. In fact, the first time I, I got up and shared in front of my class, I peed my pants. And, <laughs> no, I'm serious. I literally did. I ran to the bathroom. In the sake of transparency. <laughs> Authenticity. Yeah. I wet my britches. <laughs> yeah. No, I did. And it was embarrassing. And I was like, I am never getting in front of a crowd of people ever again. And uh, that was when I was like 10 or 11. Amazing. And, and honestly, I didn't. I didn't want to get in front of a crowd again. It wasn't until probably um, eighth grade. It was probably three or four years later that I started just feeling in my heart, I need to overcome this fear. I have mm -hmm. to, like my fear of speaking in front of people has to be, I got to beat that fear. Mm -hmm. and, um, and we had a speech class at our school. And so I, you know, went through it, started asking my teacher and my youth pastor, hey, teach me how to talk to people. Teach me how to not be afraid when I get up and speak. One of the best things my youth pastor taught me was share stories. You know, stories help you to kind of relax because you feel like you're not trying to come across like an expert on, you know, all this information. If you got a story, a good story can connect with people. Yeah. And that was something my youth pastor taught me was stories make statements stick. And if you can tell a good story and at the end of the story, give people a takeaway that, Hey, um, you know, just like you heard in the story about me and my son, God, you know, whatever that statement is. And then I think on the illustration side, I grew up watching my sisters do children's church and youth group, and they were always using props. And so it just came naturally where I was like, oh yeah, I could use a fishing hook here. I could, you know, do this there. I could, uh, whatever it was, I could yeah. find a prop to use to try to drive home a point. And at first, honestly, I was apologizing for all my props because I was like, hey, look, I know we're not in kids church. And some of you guys probably think this is ridiculous how many props or illustrations I use. But I had a whole lot of adults come to me and say, hey, look, I'm ADD. And your props actually help me to pay attention. So don't worry what the haters say. Keep using them. Keep using so I kind of decided I'm going to preach to the ADD crowd because that's kind of <laughs> like, honestly, that's what I was as a kid. I couldn't pay attention unless there was a prop or an illustration. Um, and so I'm not going to appeal maybe to the Rabbi Zacharias crowd, but that's okay. God uses all personalities to connect with yeah. all personalities. And I think in the communication piece, uh, you know, the key to effective communication, as you probably well know, is to stay in your comfort zone in terms of ability, in terms of calling, in terms of audience, right? So, uh, and you've probably seen it as much as I have, guys who try to use props who aren't really prop speakers. Right. It's awkward. And, and I'm, I, can, I can sort of, I've used props and done really well. And I've used props and been like, Hi, my name is Rob, well, and I'm awkward. You know, Paul, it's, Paul, it's, Paul probably knows one of the worst prop stories ever to happen with Dr. Wilson. Is oh, that went God. viral. He had an eagle. Was it an eagle, right? Yeah, it was a live he releases eagle. at the ORU chapel, right? Awesome. And, it's, it's this, and he tells this amazing story, and the eagle takes off, and it flies square into a window and drops. And CNN picked it up. I mean, it was it was one of those moments that you you can never take back. And so so there's so some risk in prop using props well, in a I mean, message. Say, I know you're you're friends with Jensen. I mean, think about Jensen when he used a lion on stage, right? Remember that? That was I incredible. Didn't see that happened. Oh, it, it went well. Like it was at Winterfest one year. He like walks a lion out on stage, but 
Oh my gosh. But there was like sheer panic. Like people were like, Oh yeah. Like what is going on? So he had, he's had snakes oh, on stage. Man. He's, he's yeah. fearless, man. I used, I used, oh, yeah. uh, I, we're way off subject. I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> I used, uh, you remember his uh, last supper scene that Jensen used the no, one with the big it. portrait where you have like live people who are, who are the portrait of the last supper you'd ever see. Wow. I used that one time. That actually was one that went really well, but it was, it was really cool. So I'm kudos on the props. If you're good at them, use them. If you, if you're not, Stay in your lane, I guess. Stay in your lane. Stay in your lane. That's a good yeah, point. Yeah. So it's what's great. And I, I want to come back to my earlier statement. And I I said it kind of jokingly that you're one of Dr. Wilson said you're one of the best young communicators. Um he honestly said that. We were we rent a, a house from from Billy and Lisa. Um it's funny, I call him Billy and Lisa, but I also call him Dr. Wilson because I've known him that long. Um and, and one time, actually, he was the first pastor I worked for. I was a youth pastor, I was an intern. And then I youth pastored for him. And that's a whole story off off camp, off air that we won't talk about. But like some of the things he said. But like I, I got to preach one Sunday night and he he you know, so that's like so he's like the crowning jewel of like preaching in in, in the area we were in. And he comes up to me and he goes, Jeff, that wasn't too bad. <laughs> <laughs> so for him to come to me me and go, Paul is a great preacher, I'm like, Well, I got not too bad and I was pretty happy. Paul must be really good. So Hey, He's had, he, hey, let me say this. He will be honest with me. In fact, yes. like a month ago, I said, what'd you think? And he goes, it wasn't your best. And I was like, all right. <laughs> and he goes, we'll just say that you've had some home runs. This one was more like a base hit, maybe. And I was like, okay, all right. Yeah. Well, funny, praise funny, God. Funny story. Okay, I'm going to throw my wife under the bus just for a second. But <laughs> understand that my wife is my biggest supporter. She is. She yeah. is my advocate. She is everything to me. But First time as a senior pastor, I went to a, a church in Washington, D.C., and it was in total disarray. It went from like 500 to 28, total rehab, replant kind of situation. And she was so nervous because she'd never heard me preach. Like I had only preached maybe like a handful of times in my life at that point. And so I get up my first Sunday as a senior pastor of this church, and um, and I, I just preach my guts out, right? I'm like giving the hope message of a future and I get off stage and I'm looking at her cause I'm, you know, I'm ready for her feedback and I, I just need my wife to affirm the moment. And she looks at me, she says, you might be able to do this. <laughs> might be able to you do might this. be able to do this. Well, it's, on, one of, it's one of our great stories. We all have those. Yeah. Kind of, yeah. Kind of uh, yeah. So yeah. on that note, how, how do you go about formulating the messages? I mean, cause it's one thing to be creative, it's nothing to be creative and contextual with the word of God, which I think there's, there's a, a tension at that. But some people are super creative and they go, but the, the exegesis, as we would say, was way off. How yeah. are you able to hold those intention and do both? Man, I think it's tough. It's a week by week thing. Like there's certain weeks where God will literally just download a message to me. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I barely even had to, it was almost like, it was all outlined for me. I, you know, it's like, I'm reading my Bible and God goes, here it is. Point one, two, three, four. Here's your story. Here's your takeaway. Here's your introduction. And I get it really quickly. And I have an idea for a prop and it happens in a few hours. Um, but most weeks it's honestly, it's marinating over a topic, a thought. Um, like three weeks ago when I was preaching, when I first started preaching on the virus going on, 
I, the whole week I had been feeling this thing is escalating. This thing is stirring up fear. This thing is trying to silence people from speaking faith. It's trying to yeah. get people spreading a contagion of uh, pandemonium and panic. And it's one thing to be wise. It's another thing to worry, you know? And mm -hmm. so it was like, God was giving me this message through the week. And all of a sudden it just hit, okay, victory over the virus and seven ways to have victory. And I knew we were supposed to take communion in the message. So I weaved in, you know, one of the ways of victory is through the blood of Jesus Christ. Well, it was, it was so there for me. And then there's other weeks where I'm not knowing what to preach literally until 30 minutes before the Saturday night service. And it's so hard. I'm like in 20 hours through the week trying to get a message. And it's like, it's not flowing. It's not flowing. And then all of a sudden it'll hit like, okay, this is what it is. 30 minutes before service, I'm emailing our slides guy and our, you know, I'm contacting my assistant. Hey, can you grab me a, a boxing glove in the next 30 minutes? I'm going to use it to preach about this. Or can you get me a candle? I'm going to talk about fire or something, you know? Um, and so our team has become very flexible and we talked yeah. about it. I said, you know, team, I am not Craig Rochelle. I'm not Rick Warren. I'm not six months out. I'm not three weeks out. I am week of, I'm that kind of preacher. Now I'll have a series planned that will last us for six weeks. And I'll have an idea of, Hey, we're going to go through um, the book of James and we're going to do it over six weeks, or I'm going to go through the life of King David. It's going to be eight weeks, but I don't know the title of week number four, five, six, seven, eight. I only know the title for this week, but I know where I'm headed with it. And so usually that's what I'll tell our team is, I'm headed in this direction, plan and prepare in this direction. Let's create slides for this kind of thing or background LED, you know, whatever we're going to do, something that adds the creative edge to it. Um, and so our team has become very flexible with my personality. And thankfully, I talked with Jensen Franklin. He said he's the same way. So that kind of gave me an out. I was like, yeah. I'm not the only <laughs> it's guy. An affirmation. You know, Furtick does this, Jensen Franklin. And even like talking with some of these other um, you know, pastors that are in different camps, whether they're in the camp of uh, like the Tim Keller camp or whether they're in the Jensen Franklin world, like there's so many different preachers that use different methods yes, that I yeah. told our team, there is no perfect way. It's whatever way works for you. And at the end of the day, did you prepare? Did you pray? Are you delivering a word from the Bible or is it just your opinion? So does it have the scripture in it? And is it something practical people can walk away with? Um, and I think however that comes to you, if that's 30 weeks out or if that's three hours out, make sure that you, you know, in implement those things. So here, here's the art form of that for me. So you mentioned, you mentioned Rick Warren. I was on staff at Saddleback for several years. It's one of the campus pastors there. Um, and I'm sure it's this way for you as well. The art form of what you're doing and how you do it is is the ability to take the fast fluid flexible piece so it's what we called it at saddle we called it by being fast fluid and flexible because rick would change on a dime that's good uh, he would i fast remember i remember flexible. one time we were like eight or nine days out from our easter huge easter right like eight or nine days out he says no we're changing everything we we did the whole remarketing rebranding whole nine yards sometimes rick will get up he's not knows what he's going to say until, until he gets up and speaks it. So I can say that from personal experience because I was there, I was in it. 
But I think the art form is, from a leadership perspective, is making it seem as if it's not haphazard, yeah. right? It can be spontaneous, yes, but not just reckless and thrown together at the last minute and like, you, you understand what I'm saying. So that's an art form, right? I, I think that's an art as a leader that we have to develop. It's a skill we got to cultivate. Um, it's not reckless, uh, just throwing it to the wind. Well, God will just give it to me when I get there and, and it'll happen, right? right. There, there's spontaneity, but there's also planning. So I think it's cool that you're training your team to, to kind of help you develop and cultivate that art form, right? So yeah. How do you see that? I mean, how, how have you been able to, to navigate that, that piece well? Yeah, no, I think you're right on. If it feels thrown together in the last minute, it, it hurts everyone. It hurts the people listening to the message. It hurts, it hurts the whole church because it's like, oh, we all look like we didn't prepare here. Right. Um, and so that's, yeah. I think for us as a team, we try to do the best we can. Um, with a presentation, with a service, with a message, our team knows that they're going to get my sermon to them. Um, usually on Saturday around noon, five hours before service. That's usually when I have everything. I just, I don't want to send it on Friday because right. I'm still tweaking it. Mm -hmm. uh, and they, we had this plan, like there used to be a, a time in the past where they were like, you got to send it in by Friday or else nothing's going to get done. And I said, all right, we're going to take Friday off. No one's coming into work on Friday. Saturday's a work day because we have church service. So I said, you come into work at noon and we're going to work it out to where your 40 hours is not maxed out. So we actually allow our team to do Monday through Thursday. They're off on Friday. And on Monday through Thursday, it's very like there's certain hours we set up to where they're not overworked. Right. So that way when they come in on Saturday, they're not feeling this stress, pressure. They're like, oh, yeah, we're going to get it at noon. He doesn't expect everything on slides. He only expects scriptures. With now technology, it's so easy to just plug in the scriptures. They're up there. Um, and usually there's like four points. Yeah. And then LED, the background, the creative team, they're so flexible now where they, they understand whatever he's going to ask is – within a one mile distance, we have a Walmart right next to our church. And so <laughs> if they have to buy it, they understand it's going to be easy to find it at Walmart. If they don't. Uh, and then the other thing is we have a closet full of props, illustrations to where I know, Oh, we already have this. It's already there. It's yeah. at the building and it's easy for them to find it, but that's taken time. And the creative team throws out suggestions. They'll say, Hey, honestly, I would not use that. I would use this. I would not have that. I'd use that. And usually after Saturday night, they'll give like feedback and say, Hey, this was great. This wasn't so great. Yeah. Um, yeah. But all so, of that's values. That's all culture and values that you instill and you create and you promote and you cultivate as yeah. a leader, right? Uh, that's inviting people on the journey with you. That's taking the time to explain the why behind the what. I mean, it's, yeah. it's all of those principles. It's all of those leadership skills and traits uh, that allow for those things to kind of exist and exist well, even if it seems outwardly sort of chaotic and accidental, it's actually yeah. not, right? Yeah. But that's a culture right. you got to create, I think, in order to help that art form of, of, make, of pulling it off and pulling it off well. Yeah, and I have apologized to our team yeah. <laughs> often and they appreciate that. They'll say, 
you know, we're glad that you recognize when you miss it. Yeah. Um, that you're not this prideful guy that says, well, it's on you guys. It's not on me. It's never the quarterback's fault. I'm the kind of guy where it's like, it's usually the quarterback's fault. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, I, I own that. If, if things are not excellent, I'll usually go, hey, I didn't do the best job preparing you, setting you up. Next week, we're going to be better at that. And we do. We get better the following week. And I told our team, I, I don't want perfection. I want progress. Yeah. Progress yeah. over perfection. And so that's kind of one of our cultural values is are we progressing? Are we improving? Did we get better from last week? Did our system get better? Did our communication get better? Our flexibility, whatever, you know. Yeah. Paul, you host your own podcast. You refer- referenced it at one point. It's called Learning to Lead, which is really feels to me when I listen to it like you going to school with some really wise leaders. Um, you've had different ones there with you. Um, what has been sort of – it's a two-part question. What, are, what have been some of the lessons you've learned from these leaders that you felt, feel have been of immense value um, and then what has it been like as a young leader to lead people older than you? So it's kind of like, what are, what are you learning from your mentors and how are you leading up as a young leader? Mm, man, I am so thankful and blessed to have older leaders who give me the time of day. Mm. I don't know. I think they give me the time of day because either one, they feel bad for me or two, <laughs> or, or, or two, maybe they, had a connection with my dad and they just, they feel endeared to the idea of a son stepping into the, the role, a hard, a hard yeah. role of his father. And I think that has connected me to the Brian Houston's, the Bishop TD Jake's, Chris Hodges and, you know, Jensen's. And so I've tried to just take every opportunity I can to listen to these guys and say, Hey, tell me what I'm doing wrong. Tell me how to lead better. Help me to be a better leader and they do and so um even just like two weeks ago tommy barnett came to our church and he's like a hero i'm like this guy has impacted you know so many world worldwide ministries with compassion and outreach and he loved when i started asking him questions he loved he wouldn't stop it was 10 30 p.m and i was like don't you want to go to bed and he goes will you energize me and i was like how do i energize you he goes because you're asking me questions yeah And he said, I feel honored that a young leader wants to know my thoughts. And I was like, there's a ton of young leaders that want to know your thoughts. He's like, they're they're not asking me. And I was like, wow. So it made me realize a lot of these older guys, they want to pour into the next generation. I think we just got to ask them and say, hey, we'd love to talk to you. Let's get you on a podcast. Let's let's interview um, the highs and lows of leadership, the ups and downs, the stuff you don't write in a book, the stuff that you walk through with your family. Um, and then leading down, honestly, I'm still learning that. Like one of the things God spoke to me is you're shifting from a son to a father. Um, this was kind of like last year, we have four kids. I got a six year old, four year old, one year old, and a six month old. And it's insane in our house. It's loud. It's rambunctious. It's dirty. Um, dirty diapers, meaning not dirty. Like we, we disinfect everything. We Lysol everything. Um, but you know what I'm saying? And I'm learning to be a dad. I'm learning to father these kids, teaching them, coaching them, equipping them, correcting them, instructing them. And God's translating that now into my leadership at the church. Because honestly, when I stepped in at a young age, I was a son to probably 65% of our church. 
There, honestly, maybe even 75% of our church saw me as a spiritual son, a Timothy, more than they saw me as a Paul. And so honestly, just this last 12 months, I'm noticing a shift where even some of the older people who saw me as a son are starting to see me as a pastoral father. Um, even though I'm much younger than them, they're entrusting in the beginning, in the first four years, they enjoyed my sermons and they felt endeared to me and, and loved me like a son. But these last 12 to 24 months, a shift has been happening where I'm no longer the cute little son preacher. I'm now becoming someone that they carry a respect for differently. Uh, and I don't even know how to explain it, but I feel like I'm learning how to be a father. Yeah. That's amazing. There's a, a principle um, that I learned in college from, from Dr. Wilson and then my mentor, Dr. Lamb of, of this mentoring principle. And I think sometimes mentoring is not natural. It's, it's engrafted into you by those that mentor you. And it's that Paul, Timothy, and Barnabas system that eventually the, the Paul in your life becomes a Barnabas, becomes a peer, and, yeah. and they're, they're on the same level. Um, and it's interesting that you say that, that, that you've gone from Timothy almost surpassing that Barnabas peer level as a pastor now being able to lead those people. I would imagine that would have been, have been pretty challenging, one, for you and for those people to humble themselves in a willingness to be led by you. Yeah. Yeah, it's a process. I'm in it. I'll probably be in it the rest of my life, um, or at least until I turn like 65 or something. Um, but yeah, I do think in some cases, I'm definitely a Barnabas to people and probably still a Timothy to people, mm-hmm. but I'm starting to become a Paul and, yeah. I, and I can feel it. I'm like, oh, wow, that person sees me as a father. And I, yeah. I just sense it. I don't know how to explain it. I just sense it. They're like, they look at me, the teenagers especially, but even our college students, young adults, they're like, hey, thank you for believing in me. Thank you for, you know, and I'm like, wow, I'm feeling different now. And so, but then I would say when I stepped in as pastor and I was hiring people close in age that grew up with me, it was hard for them to shift their mindset yeah. to my buddy, Paul, yeah. my friend, Paul, my co-basketball player, Paul, my co-band musician player, Paul, you know, to now my pastor. And honestly, that was a huge adjustment. Even my older brother, he works for me. And um, he came to me though, two years before I stepped in, he said, Hey, I know I'm your older brother. I know some people think maybe I should step into this role, but I want you to know that I submit to you and I want you to be my pastor. And I was like, John, you're making me cry. And he was like, look, Paul, I don't feel called to ever be a pastor. I feel called to serve in ministry. And I have no ego letting someone else pastor me, even if they're younger than me, even if it's my own brother. Yeah. And, and it's so crazy because my brother is gifted. He's talented. He's creative. He's um, yeah. Like he's 13 months older than me but he has stepped into that role of being like a lineman. And he said, I want to block for you. Like I blocked for you when we were in high school. And he said, you were the quarterback. I was the third string quarterback. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, because when you got in the game, cause he played all the time, he was a starter. And he's like, when you did get in the game, he said, I thought it was cool that as brothers, we got to work together. And so, yeah, it's, it's been a journey. So let, let's switch gears just a little bit. I mean, because um, 
Well, you know, Jeff and I, we're, we're, we're always huge fans. Part of this podcast was born of the passion to develop the local church. Yeah. We believe that part of developing and helping the local church remain healthy, continue to grow forward, um, is to incorporate younger leadership into that process, right? So, um, and yeah. I think at the same time, younger leaders want to be seen now. They want to have an impact now. They want to, to be a part of the conversation now. I don't think historically we have done a fantastic job of navigating that. Not necessarily always negative or always bad, but just that's been a challenge, I think, within the church context to actually navigate that well. So we think about great leaders. You mentioned some, Jensen Franklin, Rick Warren, Craig Groeschel, Andy Stanley, and we could just go down the list, TD Jakes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. These are great leaders. These are great, strong men of God, in my opinion, who still have a lot of time left, but still their time is, is, is closer to ending than it was to the beginning, right? Yeah. Fair enough. So when we t start talking about leadership secession, it gets really sticky because it's a lot of times personality driven, right? Or yeah. it's nepotistic, it's family driven, kind of some of the things that you've already addressed. Not that that's all bad either. I'm just saying uh, that's a dynamic. That's a part of the part of the equation. So how do we sort of bridge this gap with leaders who want to lead now with older leaders who are, who are sort of towards the end of, not at the end, but moving towards the end of their journey in pastoral ministry, high levels of leadership, whatever. Uh, how do we help bridge that gap? What is, what is a good, healthy leadership conversation on pastoral secession need to look like? Yeah, man. That's the question everybody's trying to figure out right now. Right? <laughs> we thought you had the answer. <laughs> I will say this. I can answer it from our context. I think that my father, if he was still alive today, would still be pastoring. Um, it would be really hard for him to let go because this is his heart and soul. Yeah. Unless he had something to invest his life into next. Mm. That's what I'm seeing with some of these guys is they're trying to figure out what could they invest their life into for their final 15 years, maybe 10 or 15 years. Um, I've spoken to a few without saying their names who say they feel they might invest their life into a college, a Christian college, a Lee University, a Southeastern, a ORU, a Bible college of some kind, um, and just become a founder of a Bible college or a president of a Bible college, a, 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 a teaching professor there. Yeah. Um, something where they still get to give out. They still have some sort of title or position where they get to still be a part of something. Otherwise it's really hard. And that's what I'm seeing with some of my friends is that the fathers who transitioned um, and didn't transition into something else, just kind of said, I'm going to retire. I'm going to play golf. I'm going to travel the world with my bride. They're coming back and they're feeling antsy and they're, they're mm -hmm. feeling opinionated about everything. And they're trying to take control back from their yeah. son. And so I, I think setting up the generation who's transitioning with an investment of their life, not just in it, not because like when I told my mom, when she, when she said, Hey, I'm ready to pass this off to you. I said, what are you going to do? And she said, I've got to figure that out. I said, let's figure that out before you pass this off. Yeah. And so we sat down for six months and mapped out 
all right, she's going to oversee our prayer ministry. She's going to teach a Sunday night, Sunday school class on whatever is in her heart. And that will be an outlet for her to always speak. So she's not feeling frustrated that I don't have her on the stage speaking anymore. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to set her up with connections to make sure she travels, you know, once a month or every other month, I'm going to encourage her to, you know, do other things, especially like when I stepped in, she took the next eight weeks away from the church, just traveling and ministering to people that her and my father had built relationships with. It was one of the best decisions for the transition because people weren't looking at her on the front row to see what is pastor Sharon thinking right now? Mm-hmm. Does she like the fact that he just used that prop or changed the stage or got rid of the flags or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Uh, and, and one thing my mom asked me is, Hey, your first year, can you not make a thousand changes? Because you are the change. The change is you like people need to adjust to the biggest change, which is seeing a new guy on stage every week. Oh, that's wisdom right there. Yeah. So that's what I did. My first year, I didn't make any changes. I just, I was the change. And I owned that. I'm the change. I'm going to preach. I'm going to get up. And, um, and then after that first year, we gradually slowly made little changes, little, like not big changes, um, a change on the stage, a little bit of change in the lobby, a little bit of change in some of our office areas. And it's been gradual. Well, now we're at a place where there's so much trust built. No one cares about any changes we're making as long as they're not like theological changes. Um, people are like, Oh, I love the change. We're adding this. We've shifted that. We changed the paint in the lobby. We've done something new here and they're, they're enjoying it. They're not afraid because we've crossed that, that bridge of trust with people. Um, and the people who were going to leave, they left, you know, Uh, I had like 10 ushers freak out on me. My first week as pastor, I, I come to a volunteer usher meeting and it was like a hornet's nest. Oh boy. Um, I walk in and they were already mad because my wife had asked them to change their lanyards. They were used to wearing a badge with their name on it and their face on it. And and my wife said, we're all as volunteers, we're all going to own a new culture. We're going to be called, you know, volunteers instead of just like usher greeter. And they were so used to having their usher title and their name and their picture. And, and so it was a, it was a little change, but affected them in a big way. And they were like, how dare you little kids come in here and try to do this. I raised you. I watched you play basketball on Sunday nights when your dad was preaching. And I was like, all right. So I told him, I was like, Hey, look, we love you. And I had the backing of my mom and and the board. Everyone felt like there was changes that needed to happen in the volunteer area because it was toxic. We had some volunteers that had walked through experiences in our church in years past and never got healed from it. And they were carrying this toxicity and they all quit in that meeting. Those 10 ushers literally stood up, walked out and said, we're done. And what's so amazing is the following week, God replaced them with 10 incredible healthy heart ushers that had our backs and were like, dude, that was ridiculous. We got your back. We're going to serve the people. And to this day, almost all those ushers are serving and the 10 that left like five or six of them have come back and they're now back involved again. They've repented. They, their hearts are pure. They're not angry. They're not toxic. Um, I even had the most toxic family came back to me like six months ago and they said, Hey, we were wrong. And we've noticed now that the church has grown that we judged you in the beginning. And 
we thought you were this and that. And I said, Hey, I love you. Doors always open. And, um, it kind of gradually started coming back. So I, you know, just navigating those changes. Um, and my mom had to trust me. I said, mom, there's things Ashley and I are going to do that are going to be different than your preference. And, And that's what happened after the first year we stopped doing our Sunday night church service. And she was like, what are we going to do? We need that Sunday night service. I said, mom, trust me. It's going to be okay. We're going to have Sunday night groups, connect groups. We're going to encourage people to meet in classes, discipleship classes. And it took off. It did well. People liked it because we already have enough church services. So, and then we launched another campus that happens on a Sunday night in our downtown district geared towards young people. And so anyways, with each change, I had to navigate with the board and them. No longer now am I having to navigate it, but those first three or four years. And my grandma, she's 96, works full-time for me. She's an assistant. That's, That's awesome. Um, yeah, she's, <laughs> she's an assistant to me, works 40 hours a week, 96 years old. Oh, my was goodness. There. She started working before I was born at the church. She moved to Tulsa in 1985 and became my dad's secretary and just stayed. She stayed with me. And she's had her moments where she's feeling like, oh, this. And I said, grand, grand, it's okay. We're going to get through this. It's going to trust me. I'm hearing from God. God's speaking just like he speaks to you. And she's come to me and said, hey, you were right. And then there's other times where I've said, what would you do? Give me your wisdom on this. And she's right. And I'll say, grand, grand, we're going to go with that decision. You're right on that. So there's a mutual respect and a mutual honor of listening and understanding each other's thoughts. Yeah. I, th- I think you're right about what you said about succession earlier. People who are called never lose the calling. I remember my granddad was 85 or 86. He was suffering with dementia. We had to put him in a place where he, a residence where he would leave, live the, the rest of his life. And I, I went and sat with him and he said, Jeff, I'm starting a Bible study. These people need Jesus. <laughs> and he's like an angry dementia, but he's going to lead a Bible study in this nursing home because the calling never leaves. And I think that's an interesting point is, is for succession to happen and to make room for young leaders. The, the, the older generation has to figure out how they can invest the calling and what's next. Yeah. Space for younger leaders to step into position um, so we can see the kingdom expand. I mean, that, that's what we need. We need the kingdom to expand. Um, and, mm-hmm. and young leaders, I'm not saying older leaders don't, but young leaders help bring that expansion. Oh, I think we've seen a rise in church planting because room's not being made for young leaders. Um, yeah. I think that's a critical conversation we've had elsewhere on this show. But, yeah. um, man, Paul, we are we are want to take all your time. I know you are busy with Victory. Uh, there's a church and the school and all the things you got going on. we got one final question we ask every person who comes on the podcast. Um, and because we are connected to the university, um, we typically record on campus. Today we're not. But what is one lesson you learned in college that didn't take place in the classroom? Ooh, man, there's a lot. Honestly, I would say a lot of what I am practicing today as a leader for our ministry um, didn't, didn't come from the classroom. And I don't know if that's bad to say on a, on a university connection podcast. Here. No, I went back to one of my professors and told them that my, my degree had no value and I'd like my money back. And he goes, yeah, we just changed the program. So, so listen, I've been there. I've gonna, been there. We're going to, we're going to edit some stuff. Lee, Lee has changed the program since Rob and I were there and made it better. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think ORU has as well, um, where I graduated from, 
honestly, a lot of the things that, um, that God taught me were people related, just working with people, dealing with difficult people, dealing with difficult situations. I was a referee for our intramurals. And um, <laughs> when you're a referee for college intramural sports, people scream at you. They question your calls. They question your decisions. Um, they try to tell you what to do. And I learned a lot just being a referee, being a chaplain, uh, being a greeter at the door, um, learning how to deal with difficult people, learning how to lead through pressure and stress yeah. and people questioning your decisions and trying to tell you what decision you should make or shouldn't make. Um, and honestly, one of the things I learned probably was just that um, God is going to be my best friend through all of this more than even my own wife. And I love, like my wife and I, we didn't meet in college. I thought I would meet my wife in college. She actually ended up being my best friend from middle school and high school. Um, after college is when I discovered, oh, that's the girl I'm supposed to marry. So there was times in college where I really was worried, am I going to find my wife here? Am I going to get married? Um, am I going to end up like Carmen, the singer who, you know, is single? <laughs> You might want to get married though. Like, like six get married. Or something. Okay, good, good. Um, bro, you brought back Carmen, man. Bro, A to J, addicted to Jesus. <laughs> um, Carmen was my man growing up. I got to tell y'all a funny Carmen story next time. Next time we talk. Yeah, yeah. Um. <laughs> anyways, I had these fears of, am I ever gonna get married? And and honestly, Friday nights where I, yeah, there was Friday nights in college where I felt very lonely. And a lot of my close friends had girlfriends, fiancés, um, or they were hanging out and, and some of them would go and do things that I didn't like have, I had different convictions and I wouldn't feel like I could mm -hmm. do that. And I discovered God was my best friend in college. I discovered, man, there were so many Friday nights, Saturday nights, um, just so many moments where I would go, there's a hill on our campus and I would go out to that hill, just sit down and just rediscover intimacy with God and friendship with God and recognizing that God is going to be there with me in the moments where I feel lonely as a leader, where I feel discouraged, where I'm wondering, did I make the right decision? Um, is anyone going to understand me in this process? And honestly, I just, I feel like that was one of the biggest lessons I learned is that God's going to be my best friend through all of this and he's going to give me peace and he's going to give me comfort and he's going to give me wisdom on decisions I have to make. Um, and, and I can get through it. If I have Jesus, there's nothing I can't get through. And so that's, that's what gave me peace. Even when my father passed, when our church walked through all these storms and thousands of people left and ushers, you know, revolted and walked out of the room when I preached a sermon that sucked and wasn't sure if people would come back the next week. Just remembering, man, if I have Jesus, I can make it, and I'm yeah. going to get through this, and and uh, and we're going to walk in victory. So, yeah, I think it's awesome. a great, great place to end the conversation. Man, thank you so much for your time. How can we stay connected with you? Yeah, um, well, Instagram uh, handle is Paul Doherty, uh, just P A U L D A U G H E R T Y, and it's the same thing at Twitter and Facebook. Um, and then, if people ever want to connect with our services, Victory.com. We stream all of our services and, and messages there. Uh, but I, I'm pretty good at getting back to people. If they reach out to me on social media, I'll try to respond and send them a, a response back, whether it's a direct message or comment or something. Awesome. 
Awesome. Well, Paul, we are so thankful for you coming on the show. And as we always say here at the Collectives Co Podcast, you have a seat at the table with us. Come on. Right back at you. Love yeah. you guys. Love you, bro. Thanks. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of the Collectives Co Podcast. Would you do us a favor and subscribe, rate, and review, and share this on social media so this content can reach other great leaders? Yeah.